0: Support for The Interchange comes from Wonder Capital. According to Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables, Wonder Capital is the leading commercial solar financing company in the United States, and it happened very fast. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project and do it quickly and efficiently, head on over to wondercapital.com GTM. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, welcome. This week, forget everything you think you know about solar. A growing body of research and real world experience shows that solar can be a flexible, dispatchable resource. And it can rival gas plants in providing grid regulation services without batteries. And so this gets us to familiar territory. We've had the technology to allow solar and wind to do this for years. How do we open up markets then to unleash their full potential? My co-host Shale Khan is with me from Berkeley, California. He's the senior VP of research and strategy at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Happy New Year. So what's got you most excited in your job there in venture capital headed into 2019? What's what's revving your engine? What's spinning your reserves, so to speak? <laughs> uh well,
1: I mean, my spinning reserves in general are just that my favorite thing about my job is that I'm supposed to learn for a living. And um, one of the nice things about this current universe that I inhabit is that my uh, mandate is to go learn about things that I don't know as much about. So I'm learning about whole new areas, been spending a lot of time trying to understand what the deal is with smart cities for the past few months. And, uh, you know, I came into it as a bit of a skeptic, and I'm coming out of it um, as a real believer. Um, In certain conditions. So continuing to learn about that, looking at things like um, emergency preparedness and response and how we deal with the natural disasters, and then obviously continuing to focus on all the things that that we've been looking at for years around the decarbonization and decentralization and digitization of the electric grid.
0: Smart cities. Sounds like smart grid, man. We we had a hard time with that, which is why we pivoted to grid edge. I'm still not sold on the umbrella of smart cities, although the applications are very compelling.
1: Yeah. I mean, people have started to use different terms for it. Sometimes people just call it GovTech, which might actually be a, a better Ooh. way to frame it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so I agree with you. I think that like the term might be a little bit overworn, which is why I came into it a bit skeptical, but I've just learned about a million different areas in which um government can be made more efficient and citizen engagement can be better communications can be better for customers you know resiliency can be improved using technology and so there's a lot there whatever you want to call it but um let's talk about you Stephen, because i believe that you come into the new year with
0: uh with some changes of your own i tell us about it do them. i actually dropped the news on Twitter this morning and have kind of sent it out into my network. I am uh, leaving my position as editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media, effective at the end of the year, and I am starting my own podcast production company. Before I uh, explain, I will say that this podcast, uh, The Interchange, and our other podcast, The Energy Gang, continue. So my company, PostScript Audio, is going to be producing GTM's podcast and working very closely with GTM on developing a whole bunch of uh, custom audio content for other organizations that are looking to get into the podcasting game. But I'm, I'm exercising some other passions of mine as well, recognizing the crazy, uh, intimate nature of audio and how valuable it is in, in uh, you know getting an audience that really sticks with you. I'm helping folks truly understand the, the bespoke podcasting landscape and how that provides them a gateway into this increasingly audio-centric world on the internet as people are adopting smart speakers in crazy numbers.
1: Congratulations man, very excited for you. I'm uh, Thank you. especially and living in Berkeley when you say bespoke audio I, I think of like bespoke artisanal local podcasting.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, podcasting is very much uh, an artisanal game. So, we're going to help companies with their strategies, their audio strategies, both in production of podcasts and hiring teams and helping them create something really engaging and find an audience and then also to develop, you know, custom ad campaigns and to figure out what their their organization should sound like in a world where people are interacting with brands through audio. In the meantime, we're going to you know, dig through the forces driving the energy transition on this show, which brings me to our topic of the week, a topic that brings us back to the origins of the podcast, which was designed really to explain complicated energy topics in an engaging way. And we'll leave it up to you to decide if we're engaging. The topic, flexible solar can we operate utility-scale solar power plants in the same way we operate flexible gas plants? The answer, according to new modeling from First Solar, E3, and Tampa Electric Company, appears to be yes. And it's not just modeling that's proving this. First Solar has been working for years to show that it can use a multi-hundred megawatt solar power plant to provide grid regulation services in California. So the functionality and economics are becoming more clear. The question is how we adapt electricity markets to encourage operational flexibility. So we're going to do our Best to detail where things stand. A quick shout out to Energy Twitter for sending us lots of ideas for research to discuss, and specifically to Colin Meehan and Tori Beek for flagging this topic for us. Colin Meehan is um, the Director of Regulatory and Public Affairs at First Solar, and he's got this super informative tweet storm about the subject, which we're going to link to in the show notes. So, so, moving into it, we are going to break the conversation into three parts. Why does it matter if solar is flexible? What does it take to operate solar flexibly? And what are the implications for market design? First, though, Shale, we should probably define what we mean when we talk about flexible solar.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because flexibility has become the term de jour or term de Decade. I don't know how to say that in French Um, in electricity circles. uh, And but, you know, flexibility means a whole bunch of different things. The easiest way to think about it is there's a need for flexibility on multiple time horizons, ranging from seconds to months or even seasons. Um, And so in, in this case. Basically what First Solar has been setting out to try to prove, and this is this is the latest in a series of work, as you alluded to, that they've been doing for a couple of years now. What they're setting up to try to show is that um, if you operate solar, utility-scale solar, in a particular fashion um, with some constraints around it, solar can offer uh, dispatchability or flexibility that is really fast-acting, Um, and can be used to minimize the need for other dispatchable resources in the sort of day ahead to real time um, type of timeframe. And so we could talk about exactly what that means and what that enables, but what they mean is to essentially um, offer to curtail solar strategically as opposed to curtailing solar out of necessity which is what happens today um, when there's overgeneration. And by curtailing strategically and then setting some parameters around that, you can either um, ramp down the amount of solar to avoid overgeneration or potentially ramp up the amount of solar, basically saying you could have curtailed, but you won't anymore. So in short, solar can be operated in a fashion such that you don't need as much other dispatchable generation. One way to think about this is, um, we talk a lot about the need for energy storage, and as they point out in the report, um, solar can actually serve to do some of the things we've been talking about needing batteries for uh, in certain conditions.
0: Right, so that includes spinning reserves, voltage support, uh, frequency response, smoothing of variability, load following, stuff that we typically associate with batteries or gas plants. Yeah,
1: and and solar can't do all of it, um, but it can do more than none, which is generally what it is currently being operated to perform.
0: And it's very exciting technically, although it's not that new. It's exciting because solar has this reputation of being Only a price taker, and the only way to control solar is to ramp a plant down. And this growing body of research and actual real world experience shows that that is not the case. And there's this whole exciting potential for how to use solar plants in a different way that could effectively double the penetration. Of solar in certain grids. I mean, if you can use solar more dynamically, then it really allows you to expand the portfolio of PV projects in a a much broader way. Yeah, so that's what this study
1: is all about, is trying to quantify. So they did some previous research sort of showing the technical capabilities. That was work that First Solar did in in coordination with um, the National Renewable Energy Lab and the California ISO, the grid operator. That one was basically showing, you know, we can do this stuff um, using, I think, as you mentioned, a 300 megawatt plant. This one is an economic calculation saying we know we can do this stuff. Now, what is the economic value and the economic impact of operating solar in this fashion? Um, and, and both in terms of fuel cost savings, what else would we not need, uh, to generate? And in terms of solar penetration and sort of the, the levels of economic penetration that makes sense. But as you said, it, it, the big, the key distinction here is we've always thought about solar as being binary. It's on or it's off um, and you can't really control it. And when it's, when it's on um, it's been treated as a must take resource. So in most, the way that grid operators are, are um, ensuring that there is enough, generation at a given time to meet load is they have a they have a load forecast and then they have a generation forecast that starts with the intermittent renewables with solar and wind um, they assume that those things are must take so they subtract those and then say what is the net load remaining what is the remainder that is left and then that's what they try to get commitment for from dispatchable resources, from gas or storage if they've got it or whatever it's going to be. But the more uncertainty there is around that, um, the more buffer that they need, right? You need to ensure that you're always going to have enough um, and you need to ensure that you don't have too much. And so you have a buffer on both ends. Um, But if solar can be operated to provide some of that buffer, then that would be exactly what you don't need all these other resources for. And because these other resources, many of them need minimum operating levels in order to be able to ramp up and down. They actually add inflexibility to the system in order to provide flexibility, which is sort of counterintuitive, but becomes one of the challenges as you get to, to higher levels of solar. So solar sort of exists right now in in this must-take mode. At most, um, it, it can be curtailed. So when you have overgeneration, too much... Um, solar or wind being generated simultaneously with a bunch of inflexible resources that can't be turned off, then the result today is that you curtail the solar. You just sort of shoot power into the ground. Um, and, you know, that's the solution that we have in places like California today, where we're already starting to see significant amounts of curtailment of solar in, in the springtime when you have the most overgeneration. Um, and so, you know, being able to curtail solar gets you a fair bit in the in the right distance, right? If if all you could do is must-take, um, you start to have a problem, you have overgeneration relatively early in the solar penetration curve. In this case, in the Tampa electric example that the first solar was looking at, they estimated I think around 14%. Um, so once you get to 14% solar, if it's just must-take and you can't curtail it, then you run into a grid operation issue. If you can curtail it, That helps. Um, You can operate the system up to, I think, about 25% solar penetration. But you run into the issue that we've talked about many times before in this podcast, which is the value of that solar generation starts to plummet. Um, This is the value deflation effect because it's all generating at the same time. The value goes down and down and down. And then by the end, it ends up having a negative value um, because you basically have to pay other generators to operate. And you're also
0: baking in... A bunch of thermal units that you need to balance generation.
1: Right. And so in this case of the Tampa electric example, so they, they sort of show that you can get to 25% solar penetration just by curtailing, but you end up curtailing upwards of 20% of all of that solar generation, which just economically speaking, if you're curtailing 20% of your power, um, that's a big negative impact. And then meanwhile, you, as you said, you have to have all these thermal generators that are sitting there at the ready to ramp up or ramp down as necessary.
0: And then, And then this value deflation becomes really acute, above 23% penetration, the marginal value of solar is actually negative because of the extra fuel costs needed to bring other generators online or keep them running in the background. Yep, that's right. So before we go into the two modes of operation that they modeled out here, let's talk about why they focused on Tampa Electric Company. Um, so Tico has a peak demand of five gigawatts, and they have a, a resource mix that looks similar to other resource mixes around the country. 60% combined cycle gas. Um, from gas steam turbines, 13% from coal steam and integrated gasification and combined cycle units. And they have a bunch of solar in the queue here. So they're going to add 600 megawatts of solar plus some batteries here pretty soon. And they have a, a fairly isolated transmission network. So it offers a unique snapshot. So with that in mind, what did they end up doing? Right, so they end up modeling out
1: sort of dispatchable solar in, in two different scenarios. The first one is just what they call downward dispatch mode, and then the second one is what they call fully flexible, and I'll just describe the, the differences. In downward dispatch mode, basically, what they're, you know, if you're um, a grid operator and you treat solar as must take— um, you have to watch out for either either situation, which creates the same outcome, which is solar production spiking more than you expected, um, so there being all of a sudden more solar generation than you expected, or demand shrinking faster than you expected, um, or both at the same time. And then the result of either of those is the risk of overgeneration. In order to avoid that, you have to create footroom. Um, which means you sort of need a buffer on the bottom end, which you need to pay other resources for. What they're saying here in downward dispatch mode is, what if you use the footroom that is available in a within the solar resource itself by basically saying we will un, we will um, ahead of time commit to a, a sort of maximum level of production. We will we will hold some um, the maximum so that if solar generates more than expected, it doesn't actually go into the grid. And simultaneously, you could do the same thing if called upon um, because the demand shrinks. In other words, you don't need to look outside of the solar resource in order to provide that footroom.
0: Right. So before we go on, there are just two concepts we need to flesh out a little bit more. Uh, you mentioned footroom, and footroom is – the right for operators to turn off generators in order to avoid oversupply or, or ramp them down or ramp yeah. them down turn- right exactly right. mostly ramp them down not necessarily turn them off and then headroom is the right to ramp those generators up so you don't have power shortages that's that's the the gist of headroom and footroom Basically, yeah. Just think of think of there being a
1: buffer on both sides because you need to ensure at all times there is sufficient generation, that's your headroom, and that there isn't over-generation, and that's your footroom.
0: Yeah. So I guess I'm a little confused. Well, I'm going to step in as the listener. If I'm listening to this explanation, how is downward dispatch different than just straight-up curtailment?
1: I think it's because your forecast, it's, it's built into your forecast ahead of time. It's committed by the resource to... Um, Ahead of time, as opposed to just saying, "Oh, there's overgeneration. I'm going to curtail now." Because you commit it ahead of time, um, then it makes it such that the grid operator does not need to get a different resource to commit it ahead of time. Either way, you need you need this downward dispatch because you need the footroom. You need to ensure you're not going to have overgeneration. If solar isn't committing to it, then you're going to have another resource that's going to have to be able to say, "I will. I will ramp down."
0: If solar commits to it directly,
1: um, then you don't need to, to look outside.
0: Okay, then to break it down to its most simplistic explanation, it's all about scheduling, scheduling that curtailment. And if you can schedule, you can plan, and that prevents you from having to dispatch more thermal generators uh, that are able to plan ahead. You're basically putting solar plants on equal footing with thermal generators. Um, so what's the outcome then? So just switching from curtailable mode so you know
1: allowing solar to be shot into the ground if there's over generation to this downward dispatch mode at least in the modeling that the first solar and e3 are doing here makes actually a pretty huge difference um once you get to the higher levels of solar penetration so that they maxed out their analysis here at 30 percent solar penetration so let's just look at that um point in time you would basically curtail about half as much solar as a result um, in the downward dispatch mode. So you go from in the curtailable solar scenario, it's over 30% of the solar generation becomes curtailed, uh, which is just a ton, down to about 16%. So you cut your curtailment in half, um, meanwhile, the, the production cost savings, what you save from not having to have other generators produce jumps from something like 14% in the curtailable mode to almost 20% in this downward dispatch mode. In other words, um, it, it, you know, just having solar schedule itself into the market like this allows you to have both more solar on the grid uh, and allows you to save significant costs from other generators.
0: Yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive. By saying you're going to curtail, you reduce overall curtailment. Yeah,
1: exactly. By, by scheduling curtailment ahead of time, because the forecast error is reduced, you then actually need to curtail less.
0: And so the benefit is that you cut curtailment in half, and you also have a positive incremental value of solar electrons at way higher penetrations. Right. So this is a win-win. Right thing.
1: right. That's a, so we, like we talked about before, if if it, you're in curtailable mode, you're not dispatching. Uh, downward, then by the time you get up to those 25, 30% solar penetration levels, as we said before, the value of solar, the marginal energy value is negative. But that's not true. In the downward dispatch mode, it stays positive, albeit still a pretty low number. Um, At least you're not down to negative value by the time you get to
0: 25, 30% penetration. Okay, so the more you schedule, the better the economics. And coming up, fully flexible solar, how it will work and what it means for the way we structure markets and contracts. Firstly, though, Are you a solar developer who's having trouble securing financing for your commercial solar projects? Our sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help. You've heard a lot about Wonder on this podcast. In 2018, Wonder financed more than 60 megawatts of small commercial solar projects across the U.S. Its secret sauce is software, and projects range in size from 100 kilowatts to 5 megawatts with community solar, virtual net metering, PV plus storage, a whole range of stuff. Wonder's sophisticated software platform means that solar developers can receive loan terms within two business days and contract a project within two weeks. To learn more about how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com GTM. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. Okay, so then
1: uh, in this modeling, they run what they call fully flexible mode. Um, Which is actually pretty straightforward. The downward dispatch mode, um, as we've already talked about, basically just says we will dispatch downward where necessary. Um, This is just saying in addition to that, we will do the reverse. Um, would dispatch upward. Now, this is the one that maybe doesn't make as much intuitive sense because you think of solar, you're like, you can't turn it up, right? There is as much as there is. Basically, what this requires that you to do is to intentionally underschedule or curtail solar ahead of time. So let's just say it's a 100 megawatt plant and you uh, think it's going to be operating fully, right? You think that your, your forecast of solar production implies there's going to be 100 megawatts of production at this given time. You schedule yourself for 90. Um, then in the event of under generation or a demand spike, you can actually ramp up. So it allows the solar plant to ramp up because it has been under otherwise. In other words, basically, in this case, solar is providing both the footroom that we talked about before and now also providing some of the headroom.
0: And this has enormous consequences for solar penetration. You can, in in the, the Tampa territory get solar up to 30% or more of the portfolio without the use of batteries, and then under full flexibility mode, because you're limiting the number of thermal generators that have to come online to support that solar, you see pretty strong cuts in CO2 emissions. Full flexibility mode is really where you get the most environmental benefit as well.
1: Yes. Though, one thing that I thought was sort of interesting is the difference between curtailable mode where solar is not providing flexibility and downward dispatch, the sort of partial flexibility mode. The difference between those two is huge in terms of production cost savings, in terms of curtailment and the amount of solar you can get. So just offering ahead of time to schedule solar downward um, makes a really big difference. The difference between being able to schedule solar downward and being able to schedule solar in both directions, not as big So still makes a big difference, right, Um, in all the ways that we talked about before. It allows solar to go further, higher penetration, less curtailment, et cetera, et cetera. But it makes less of a difference than just doing the sort of partial flexibility. So, you know, I guess the takeaway for me there was partial flexibility is a lot better than nothing. Full flexibility is somewhat better than partial flexibility.
0: And what's important to mention here is that full flexibility mode is – possible. This is not just a model on a piece of paper. First Solar was working with NREL throughout 2017 to prove that its 300 megawatt power plant there in California could provide the range of full flexibility services that are outlined in this paper. So we have real world experience. And of course, inverter technologies, both for wind and solar, have allowed us to provide these services, you know, frequency regulation services for some time. We just now have a much different context in which to put those services. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that every solar project could do this today, right? This does rely upon you. No, having no, an no. That's not what I'm saying. Power controls. I'm system.
0: just saying the suite of technical solutions is there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, one point that that Colin Mien from First Solar has made is that First Solar is installing the technology to do this in new projects, despite it not being utilized yet in the market. So some projects are going to be able to do this on a retrofit basis if the market context changes. Other projects will need to have it built in in the first place.
0: Well, this brings us to the big question at hand, which is if the technologies are available and we can provide these services today, how do you design markets around them So that they can participate in the way that thermal generators have. It's a very tricky question. So, Shale, um, where do you want to start with this? Uh, What what are the big hairy questions that this raises for you?
1: Well, let's start with the fundamental point, which is that in order to do this, if you are a solar plant operator, um, in either case with the flexibility, either you are offering to dispatch downward where necessary, or you are pre-scheduling yourself at less than your maximum capacity so that you can dispatch upward. The result of either of those two things is that you're going to produce less electrons um, than you would otherwise. And so in the context of m- how most solar projects are are compensated today, that means you're going to take an economic hit, right? It makes sense. You're going to produce less power. And because most projects right now just have a fixed price PPA that pays you per kilowatt hour, um, it is in your economic best interest to produce as many kilowatt hours as possible. And the way that many of these PPAs are structured right now, although this is starting to change, is that even if those electrons are curtailed, ultimately, you still get paid the same amount. So you have really no incentive to do this right now. In addition to that, you have this added complexity, which is some of these projects have renewable energy credits. Those are calculated based on production. So again, you don't want to underproduce because you want to get those wrecks. So as it stands today, even if you have the technical capabilities, it really generally doesn't make any sense for you to do this. What would change that is if there's an economic reason for you to do that. So if the markets compensate solar for doing this either in a an organized market um, by allowing solar to participate in, in regulation up, regulation down, whatever the market might be, or in, on a bilateral contract with a vertically integrated utility, provide an economic incentive to do that. That's part of your solution. You, then you still have to deal with how is the contractual relationship, change the PPA structure, deal with RECs, all these kinds of things. So it's not... It's not an easy problem to solve. Um, but I think that first solar, the reason they're doing this work is that they're saying, look, if you would just create the economic opportunity here, we think we could figure out, um, at least for some of our projects, how to do this. And there are examples of this, they're, though they are somewhat few and far between. The public service company of Colorado, the um, regulator in, in the state of Colorado, already sort of does this with wind. They they control their wind generation, which they have a ton of. Um, both up and down for regulation reserves. So, it, you know, it's not unprecedented, but it's it creates complexity both in the contractual relationship and in the the market structure.
0: Yeah. And by the way, they've been doing that with wind farms since the 80s. This is not a new thing, but it is certainly a new thing in solar, and it means we have to revise the way contracts are structured. And ultimately, you don't revise those contracts until you actually get applications, and you don't get applications until you, you know, redesign the market mechanisms. Um, Right. A simple example of the sort of market structure challenge that um,
1: First Solar points out in the report is that some wholesale markets don't separately procure the up and the down dispatch. Um, they procure sort of in one single product for up and down. But as we've talked about, you know, and as you can imagine with solar, it's much cheaper to dispatch down to say we will um, dispatch down ahead of time if necessary than it is to dispatch up, which requires you to by default under schedule your solar. So, you know, an, a simple fix, a relatively simple fix would be for markets to separate those two products, which some of them already do and others don't. But it's those kinds of nuances that are going to make the difference in determining whether there's any economic rationale to operate solar flexibly.
0: So a crucial piece of this report is how much solar you can get without the use of batteries. And under the full flexibility mode, you can get 30% or more of solar generation without the use of storage. I want to unpack that a little bit more. Does this mean that across the country we don't really even have to be worrying about batteries that that solar can become a huge portion of the energy mix without the assistance of storage i mean yes and no
1: first of all 30% is not super high penetration of solar right and in some markets were are going to be approaching that before too long like california and so if you want to get to even higher penetrations batteries become more and more important and then you need different kinds of batteries you know so this isn't a it's not a case against energy storage in general, and especially in the long term. But I do think um, that it's making the case that energy storage is not the only zero carbon solution to some of the flexibility challenges presented by increasing penetration of renewables. And you could imagine a situation if the markets were structured differently and these contracts started to get negotiated differently, where uh, the flexibility of a solar resource is actually competing with energy storage to provide the same service. And I think that's a good thing, right? Whichever one is cheaper, more efficient to provide that service should do so and will allow us to get further down the decarbonization path. So it creates a potential partial competitor for energy storage, but uh, but I don't think you know negates the need for it in the long term.
0: Implicit in this is another competitive question. Who can provide these services better, distributed resources or utility-scale resources? Utility-scale solar, which is, you know, First Solar's bread and butter. And Colin Meehan alluded to this in his tweet storm. You know, uh, markets like New York are focused on DERs providing these services, but First Solar, of course, thinks that utility-scale solar is a much better option. What does this tell us about which set of resources can do a better job. I'm not sure it tells us anything about which set of resources can
1: do a better job of providing flexibility, but I do think it makes a strong case that both sets of resources can provide this flexibility. In other words, as you said, in places like New York and to some degree in California, um, the focus on introducing flexibility into a decarbonizing grid has been around distributed energy resources. a, A lot of times because... Um, There's load control uh, in addition to, you know, renewable generation and energy storage. Um, And so the assumption has been that's an easier way, you know, deal with the demand side. This is saying deal with the bulk supply side also, and you can do that with solar on its own. So, you know, it should be in the mix. I don't know. I don't know if we know which one's going to be better.
0: Safe to say there are more unanswered questions than answered ones. The technical piece is there. The question is how we design everything else around it. Well, that's going to do it, folks. Tell us what we missed, what we got wrong, or if you're feeling nice, give us a pat on the back on Twitter. How did Shale do in explaining flexible solar? Shale, how do you think you did?
1: Man, I don't know. This is a this is a wonky one. I, I hope it made some sense. It, I, I
0: feel like I understand it
1: 75%, so I don't know.
0: Well, I, I left it to you because you did a far better job than I could have, so... Uh, if, if you are confused or if you now have a sense of enlightenment, let us know. We're trying to do more with this podcast to engage our listeners. And you know, despite the many drawbacks of Twitter, it seems to be the best place for us to engage with you all. So hit us up at interchange show or find Shale and myself there. As always, you can do us a huge favor by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It is a major rankings booster. It spreads the word about the energy transition to more and more people. So thanks for that in advance. And of course, we really appreciate you listening. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. And this is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media.